Well, welcome, church, to the first Sunday morning of uh, a brand new year. It's going to be a better one. Let's uh, launch into a new series for a new year. We're going to be looking through the book of 1 John, Walking in the Light. 1 John and the Path to Living Deeply in Christ. This will be an extended series. And uh, today we're going to start right at the very first verse of chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first four verses. Get a Bible, let's study together. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And then the goal, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So today we launch a study into what many feel was the last book of the Bible to be written. It's debated, but what many scholars feel is the case is John probably wrote this letter after, after his experience on the island of Patmos, just off modern Turkey, where he wrote what we now call the book of Revelation. And it's generally believed that after he wrote Revelation, he was released from imprisonment, went probably to Ephesus, and finally wrote 1 John at the very end of his life. I say it's debated, but many scholars feel this is the last book written. And so, at the age of about 90, 90 years of age, he writes this letter to the early church scattered around Asia Minor, probably not just one congregation. And so we should bear in mind that as John writes this letter, his heart is still probably fairly freshly moved by those dramatic visions that he received from the Lord Jesus on the island of Patmos. And it, it probably puts a fair degree of urgency into the things that John writes. So, so this letter, I think, is a summary. John writes to his little children, because he's old. He writes about the kind of things that they need to keep in place, facing the kind of things that John has just seen on the island of Patmos following the Lord successfully, no matter what comes or no matter when it comes. That's kind of the framework we're working with here. And so after, boy, 90 years, it's a long time, after 90 years of life, he's been around long enough now to observe how um, our best intentions and spiritual passions and desires can cool sometimes, can wane under different circumstances. Not everyone sees the things John saw in his visions on Patmos. We can be prone to distractions. Sometimes 
with our best intentions, secondary things move into the place of primary things in terms of importance. False things creep into the center of our hearts, secondary things. And if, if we're going to be successful, this letter is what John, knowing what he knows about the future coming of Christ and Christ's kingdom, he wants these Christians to keep uh, constantly, consciously refreshed in the center of their thoughts. There's more, I think. We're not only prone to distractions. Idolatry is what John will call it in this letter. But we're also prone to doubt. I mean, trials, um, even the situation we're in now with this pandemic, trials, they, you just get weary. Trials can wear us down. Think about the early church. Think about these people to whom John writes. As they witness the apostles, John, one of the last, one of the oldest, the apostles from whom they have received so much in, in the, the oral, the, they didn't have the New Testament written the way we do, but the teaching, the instruction of the apostles. And now the church sees these apostles are dying off one by one. The apostles who had brought many of these Christians to the Lord, their leaders, they were beginning to leave them. And none of the things that the leaders had said about the coming of Jesus, none of that had happened yet. So, so there could become, uh, there could come a sense of discouragement. It could settle on their souls. So all of this, I think, drives the wording of those first four verses of 1 John that we read. In the first three verses we're going to look at in a minute, John lays the foundation of everything that's to follow. He, he makes basic statements about the gospel that the church... John, John doesn't want the church to ever let slip away. And so there's three key ideas from these verses that I want to kind of drill down into in the opening of this series. Okay, so point number one. The message John has is a proclamation, a declaration of absolutely reliable, divinely revealed truth. I get that in the first three verses. Let's look at them together. That which was from the beginning. Now, now notice the way he writes here. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. He's not talking about some mystical vision here. Our eye, these eyes. We saw it. He says it again. Which we have looked upon. Then he, then he gets even more specific, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's going to repeat himself now. That life was made manifest. That's like looking upon. Here he goes again. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim. There's a verb. Proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was, again, made manifest to us. That which we have seen, okay, John, you already said that, and heard, we, here's the verb again, proclaim, so he said it once there, twice there, we proclaim also to you, 
so that, so here's the goal, you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the fellowship isn't just something created by, let's just do a group hug and everybody love everybody. This is something, a fellowship rooted in this gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we bank our lives on, and that's what creates the fellowship. Two times, I pointed out, two times in three verses, John uses that, uh, that news reporter's term, proclaim. We, we proclaim to you the eternal life. That's in verse 2. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. That's in verse 3. So that's the first thing. John has a proclamation. That's our first point. He has an announcement. He, he wants people to know, he wants people to know that, that no matter what happens, no matter what comes, they can be sure of what he's telling them about Jesus Christ. He wants them to know proclamation, proclamation, twice. This is not, this is not speculation. This is not a rumor. This is not something he just heard somebody talk about. He's not sitting in some cathedral with candles and stained glass windows. He's not quoting poetry. He's not talking about some mystical vision. He uses this language of, of the eyewitness, the announcement of the gospel, I think, confronts the whole tone of religion and truth in our present age. I think the strategy of the spirit of the age in our day is not, not so much to deny the claims of the Christian faith, but to reduce the New Testament message to one of many possibilities, one of many options, one of many opinions about God, the afterlife, eternal life, about religion. So, so very subtly, the Christian revelation is discussed by our world as though it was more or less just a, a helpful, positive product of one's own inner spirit. A series of religious insights, moral aspirations, perhaps, positive life principles, kind of Oprah-like. That's why we, we, we see over and over again Christians simply referred to as people of faith. And there's all sorts of different faiths. And they're all people of faith. As though it was just, the, the, as though the key thing was just the sort of inward psychological process of belief. Rather than the object of faith being rooted in solid events of divine actions in actual history observed and recorded by real people. So this is the, this is the kind of misguided approach of, of uh, open-minded kind of tolerance, appeasing all religions equally, embracing none passionately above any other, and, and in giving equal credibility to all religions... After all, who wants to appear bigoted or narrow-minded? In doing that, our world has efficiently silenced the unique truth claims of the Christian faith. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not to censor opposing views. 
There certainly is proper competition of ideas in the marketplace of ideas. But the Christian gospel is betrayed when it's considered only as an option to unbelief. It is that, but it's more than merely a a reply to atheism. It's also the God-given revelation confronting false religions and false belief systems. I mean, the Bible says, in this, in this very letter, the Bible says far more about idolatry than atheism. And so you see, you see the passion of John. He's about 90 years old. He's been loving Jesus. He's been serving Jesus for a long time. He's been through the fire many times. He's been in prison. He's been beaten. He's been exiled. And so finally, finally, he doesn't have a lot of time left. He gets one more kick at the can, one more chance to say something about Jesus to these churches. What's he going to say in his last, in his last hurrah? What's he going to say in his last letter? He's going to tell us. When you read the letter, it's striking. He doesn't even take the time to say, dear friends, or, or this is a letter from John. No, there's this proclamation that still burns in his heart. And after all these years, after all these years, 90 years old, he just, he just can't wait to get right into it. I've seen something. That's what John says. I know this for sure. I'm not crazy, not senile, I'm not delusional. This is still the most important thing I know. There are no equals to this. My message is from the Lord. I'm not searching for truth. I have found the truth. I I look at my own heart. I can only look at that. You look at yours. But God forgive me for sounding so cold and lifeless sometimes about biblical truth. I mean, God forgive us all for taking the marvelous announcement of a sure gospel and turning it into something speculative, distant, uncertain. Let me just stay with this for just a minute longer, this first point. John has a proclamation. John is starting at the beginning. The church, according to John, is this is what we're about. The church is in the proclamation business. She has a message to deliver, and her task is absolutely unique in this world. I was looking again at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I mean, there's a place. Surely, there's a place for lofty speech and human wisdom. You have political meetings where people put forward their ideas. You have scientific forums where people present varying theories. You have public forums where leaders try to find the pulse of the people and put forward a proposal that will appeal to the majority and keep them happy. Choose your words carefully. You got to say the right thing in the right way with the right slant. But John, Paul in that text, but John especially, he's separating the church from all of that. Church doesn't live in those realms. She has and declares a settled, revealed message from God. 
She didn't invent it. She's not free to alter it. It doesn't matter whether people like it or don't like it. All she is called to do is proclaim it. So that's the first point. The absolute rules of truth and knowing truth. They apply to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not dealing here with an opinion. It isn't one among many. It stands on its own two feet as an absolute proclamation of fact. People don't change the truth of the gospel either by their acceptance or their rejection. It doesn't change the gospel. The gospel judges us. We don't judge it. Point number two. Because the gospel message is reliable, a reliable declaration, it follows that it's worthy of our absolute trust. John kind of puts this all together in, in three verses. I just took the phrases, which we have, which we have heard, which we have looked upon with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, which we have seen, was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. I mean, I don't mean any disrespect to John, but this really is terrible writing. I mean, how many times can you say the very same thing over and over and over in three sentences? What's he doing? He, he's making sure you and I don't miss his point. So, so he's, he's doing with his, I'll say pen, he's doing with his pen what it would be the equivalent to raising our voice. He's, he's emphasizing, he's shouting on paper. And he's saying, don't ever get the idea that we were deceived. Don't ever get the idea that we just made stuff up for some desired effect. And, and, and notice, when he says we, it's we all through this text. When he says we have seen, he means that all of the apostles had the very same kind of specific experience that he had with Jesus. In other words, each one could validate the other. There were sound historic checks and balances. Just as other texts in the New Testament reinforce that very same idea, 2 Peter 1.16. For we, there's the plural again, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is like devised, planned, uh, wanted to make a certain effect wanted to sweep people off their feet with a great story. So we, 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 we devised something. He says, no, 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 it wasn't like, we didn't create this. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were, there's the plural, eyewitnesses of his majesty. I love it. I mean, this is always the thrust of New Testament revelation. This is true. We didn't devise this message. We saw it. Don't come to Jesus and put your trust in him because of some feeling or mood 
or vision or dream. I'm not saying God doesn't reveal things in any other way. What I am saying is believe this message of the gospel primarily for one reason only. It is true. I didn't come to Jesus because the gospel works. I mean, the cults have worked for many people. Drugs have worked for many people. Kabbalah works for Madonna. Scientology works for Tom Cruise. TM worked for John Lennon. There are scores of ideologies and religions that work, if by work you mean producing some kind of inward effect. But that's not the approach John begins with as he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls people to believe the gospel primarily because it's true. It's true. That way you'll always have sure footing in your Christian walk. Regardless of your ups and downs and circumstances, it's just, it doesn't change the fact that this is true. The Christian proclamation is rooted in what actually happened. It's not a matter of some experience for some people of a certain psychological makeup. It's not finding out what gives me peaceful feelings inside. John says, we all saw Jesus, he had the same human flesh that you and I have. This is powerful. He says, we saw him do what he did. We heard him say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We heard him say, I go to prepare a place for you and will come again and receive you to myself. We saw him call Lazarus out of the grave. It was near Bethany. We all heard him say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. John says, we saw all this. Oh, the arrogance of people trying to fake humility by not claiming too much certainty. People who would deny the miracles, deny the divine nature of Christ, mess around with his resurrection from the dead. To all of them, John would say, listen, I've given my life to this. I was there. Were you? I rested my head on his chest at the Passover celebration. Did you? I saw his hands inside when he came to us, resurrected, after we saw him die on the cross. I hugged that scarred body. Did you? John's piling up words to say, listen to me. So the message, first, I said, is a revealed message. It's a proclamation. Secondly, it's a trustworthy message because it's true. Last point, point number three. The gospel message is a, is a missionary declaration. Let me, let me say something that might surprise you. But there is no scriptural way to make God's gospel message a non-proselytizing faith commitment. This is not rudeness. It is gospel love. And John insists on it. Look what he says in 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Okay, we've studied that coming out of 1, 2, and 3. Now I want to show you this point. 
this proclamation thing. We've been doing the proclamation. Why? So that, now here's the reason. Here's the motive. So that you two may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at these words. And we are writing these things so that, surprisingly, that word doesn't seem right. That our joy may be complete. Not just have joy, but have it completed. I mean, there's something striking, different, about the way John presents the the converting, grace-filled message of Jesus Christ in these two verses. When When you ponder it, I think you'll see it's quite different from the way we normally talk about it. I mean, John knows full well the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change a life. John, more than any other apostle, writes about born again. But that's not the way he introduces the gospel here, strikingly. Surprisingly, he chooses first to talk more about proclaiming the gospel than even receiving the gospel. Notice it again. He's not writing these things to make the joy of others complete. They'll be joyful if they come to Jesus. Certainly that's true. But he says, last part of verse 4, he's doing all this to make his own joy Proclaiming to make his own joy complete. To make our joy complete. So, so if I can, if I can put it this way, maybe it's more striking. There's, there's this glorious selfishness in carrying and proclaiming the gospel to others. We really are, we're really giving ourselves the greatest joy. That's a profound test. Those words, we're, we're proclaiming this to make our joy complete. Maybe, maybe they test the depth and the authenticity of, of my understanding of life in Christ. I mean, John surely has had an incredibly rich heritage with the Lord. I mean, think, think of the blessings he could have recounted by age 90, walking with Jesus But there's no dissertation of all those things here. He just says, I long for you all to have this wonderful life of Jesus Christ and my joy won't be completed simply in receiving grace myself. I won't have my joy fulfilled or completed until you share this experience with me. I think... When you look for it, this is the common experience of all those first apostles upon encountering Christ. I tried to put these statements together on one slide so you could see them back to back quickly. Paul, I'm under an obligation, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Or here, the love of Christ controls, constrains in some translations. For I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. But John says, my joy will only be complete when you come to faith in Christ. Paul says, woe is me if I don't proclaim and teach and share the gospel. And so John 
holds this out as just the basic posture of the heart of any and all who have truly encountered Jesus Christ in a New Testament, deeply converting way. New Testament conversion, if I read this right, New Testament conversion always always accomplishes at least, I'm not saying this is everything, but always accomplishes at least two things. A, there will be born in the heart of the convert, we'll see this in future studies, there'll be born in the heart of the convert an intense hatred of sin. He, he will fear it like nothing else on earth. Jesus, the, 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 the truly converted will, will cut off the hand before he uses that hand to sin. That, that's the image. So that's the first sign of genuine conversion. It, it produces this animosity toward grieving the Holy Spirit. And B, the true convert will give up any time, any possession, any sacrifice to ensure everyone else has the same opportunity to receive mercy from Jesus Christ. And to make that point pungently, John says in that fourth verse, we are writing these things so that our joy can be made complete. What is it that makes a truly joyful Christian? Well, Pastor Don, joy comes from knowing Jesus. Don't you remember the old song? If you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, let Jesus come into your heart. There you go. Joy comes from knowing Jesus. All I'm saying is that song is somewhat incomplete. Knowing Christ is just the entry point into joy. It's just the beginning of the journey into joy. The life of joy, the fullness of joy that John describes, having your joy completed doesn't come just from knowing Jesus. It comes from sharing Jesus. Made complete. Is there, is there something important? I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm just asking the question. Is there something important for, for the church to rediscover here? Why, why might it be that many Christians lack what we would call the joy of the Lord? My goodness, don't we have enough material blessings, enough prosperity, enough Bibles, enough ministries? We have all those things. We have all those things probably more than most generations, and we have heaven to boot but just maybe we do need to rediscover John's lesson that, that big joy comes from big mission. Big joy comes from a big cause. And, and there's nothing more boring than just dabbling with the outsides of the Christian life. Share Jesus extravagantly. Share Jesus extravagantly. Find ways to do it. Make your joy complete. It's a true declaration. It's worthy of trust. It's always a missionary declaration. And that's how John opens up what we're going to have for 10 or 15 weeks, the study of First John. Let's pray, church. We do thank you for our Bibles 
as we're studying Sunday nights about the Bible. Thank you for the truth of your word. Let that ring deeply in our hearts. We talk about the truth of your word. Let it just ring deeply in our hearts. It, it's really true. It's factually true. Exclusively so. And let our trust in the Lord run deep and let our sharing of Christ produce the deepest joy of all in our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, 6.30, something a little bit different, and I, I hesitated because it's, it's kind of an involved study. But in our series called Soul Food, how we got our Bible and how to read it, tonight I want to look at how do we know that we have, there's 66 books, 27 New Testament, 39 Old Testament. Um, our Roman Catholic friends would have 13 more books than you and I have. Our Jewish friends would have 27 fewer books than we would have. What I want to look at tonight, maybe a little bit more involved, but I hope not densely so, but I think it's an important topic. How do we know we have the right books in our Bible? How do we come to these 66? Why don't we exclude some that the Jews exclude? And why don't we include some that Roman Catholics include? How do we know we have the right books? How do we get them? And can we be sure of it? So that's what we're going to be studying tonight, 6.30. Maybe have a notepad, bring your Bible. I think it's an important truth. I think it's an important truth. I think, I think when confidence in the Bible is deepened, obedience to the word is enhanced. So it's a practical truth in the long run that we're going to be studying. God bless the church. Hang in there. Love one another.